I'd love for you to get your Bibles out. And I want you to start with me in the book of Acts chapter 1. We are mere days away, days from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day we celebrated it. And I want you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of those who might be feeling, what the, well, figure out what they might have been feeling right about now, one week out. In the book of Acts chapter 1, here's what it tells us. He says in verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also pre presented himself alive after appearing to them, sorry, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, after appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering to them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Stop there for a minute with me. And think about those 40 days after Jesus was risen from the grave. Those must have been pretty good 40 days, I would think. You know, you're getting to celebrate with Jesus, risen, alive. But when you read the stories in the Gospels, those first few days aren't days of celebration. In fact, Jesus finds them locked inside their house. Not their houses because they weren't from Jerusalem. But locked inside houses in Jerusalem, afraid of the people. In a spirit of defeat. So much so that it took many people telling them over and over again, Jesus is really alive, before some of them ever believed it. We read a couple weeks ago about the two men on the road to Emmaus who had heard the women say he wasn't there, that he was alive. They'd heard Peter and John come back and say he's not in the grave, he's alive. And still they said, seemed like nonsense to us. We were hoping he was going to be the one. We're sad. Doesn't seem like it worked out. I mean, isn't that amazing that, that uh, after all that, you still got people that don't quite believe. Jesus didn't come out of the grave to a victorious people ready for him with balloons and, and streamers just saying, I, we, we knew you'd come back, Jesus. We were just waiting for you. He came back to a group of people broken. He came back to a group of people that had stuck in the thought that they'd failed Jesus or maybe even that Jesus failed them. He came back in some ways to a defeated group of people and through the power of the resurrection, he resurrected them. Because they were stuck. And if you read some of those accounts, I mean, they were sad, they were afraid, they were stuck, they were ashamed. When Jesus comes out of the grave and, and uh, the, the, the women go and check out the tomb and all they find is a couple of angels saying, he's not here. Why are you looking at a cemetery for a living people? And you remember what, what happens that, that uh, uh, after that Mary is in the garden and she sees Jesus and he, she thinks he's the gardener. And then he says her name, Mary. And the moment he says her name, she recognizes him. And he talks to her. And, and one of the things that... that, that they, these women were instructed to do was go back and tell the disciples and Peter that I'm alive. That, word, that, that phrase, and Peter, is an interesting one, isn't it? Because Peter was a disciple. Peter was one of the apostles. Peter was, if anybody's part of the group, it's Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus somehow makes an extra emphasis on this one who's probably right now dealing with the immense amount of guilt that he's let Jesus down. Peter famously denied Jesus three times, right within earshot of Jesus. The Bible tells us that when he denied Jesus three times and, and, and the rooster crowed, that the Lord looked at him. I don't know if you've read that story with that context, but the gospel tells us the Lord looked at him. He was close enough for Jesus to make eye contact with him and still deny Jesus. And Jesus let it happen. So Peter is having to be kind of singled out here. Tell the disciples and Peter, I'm alive. You need to tell them I'm alive. Because this resurrection is going to have to resurrect Peter. It's going to have to resurrect John. It's going to have to resurrect Thomas, who's, who's not going to believe it at first. Thomas is going to have to say, i got to see it with my own eyes. I'm going to have to touch it. 
I'm going to have to touch his, the holes in his hands and his feet. I'm going to have to just check and make sure he's not just a vision. That's the kind of church that Jesus came back to. These are the kind of guys that are going to have to lead the church into the next stage. You know, I mean, Jesus isn't going to stay around. He's going to ascend, and he's going to leave these guys in charge to take the gospel of the kingdom to the rest of the world. And he's got some work to do in those 40 days. And so most of the encounters we see in the gospels, most of the ones, now I realize over a period of 40 days, that's a long time. There's a whole bunch that Jesus probably said that we don't know. But after a period of 40 days, there's a whole lot there. When we do see those, the, the accounts in the gospel, there's a whole lot there that doesn't seem like Jesus just saying, hey, high fives all around. It seems like Jesus rebuilding his people. And I know that we've got a different group of people here today. You've got pr- probably some who are feeling at the top of your life. And you've got some that are probably just saying we're soldiering on. But you may, we may have some in the room today that need a resurrection in your own self. You need a resurrection of feeling like maybe, maybe the Lord's forgiven me, but maybe he can't use me anymore. Maybe the Lord's forgiven me, but I don't know if I can ever be trusted again. I wonder if you have really put as much faith in the cross and the blood of Jesus as we claim to put it in. And as we read this, and and I want to read you something in Matthew chapter 26, going backwards to the night Jesus was betrayed. Here's what he says to his buddies. Here's what he says to his friends. Here's what he says to those that have been with him through all the thick and the thin. And when the crowds deserted Jesus, these guys were there. But at the end of the game, even their best bravery, even their best... Um, loyalty failed them. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, is, is, once again, is Jesus being ambiguous about what's going to happen? I mean, do you read this and still go, how did you guys not expect he was going to get up? Right? He's very clear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be raised. But he says, you're all going to fall away because of me this night. Guys, these are, this is the kind of guest speaker you don't invite to church. The one that gets up and goes, hey, everybody, tonight you're all going to fail. Royally. You're all going to fall away. I mean, would you be like, we should have this guy back. This is a, I'm pumped up, ready to go. I mean, for me, you know, my, my picture of Jesus is the guy that encourages us and comforts us and pumps us up. And Jesus, come on. If that's what's going to happen, do something to stop it. You're all going to fall away. But after I've been raised, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. In other words, there's going to be a reunion, and we're going to work all this out. Here's the response from them, and it's not surprising. It would probably be what I'd say, too. Peter said, well, I don't know. Peter's pretty bold. Peter said, even though all may fall away, and he's talking about the people that are right there. (laughs) Lord, I I know you had to say this to all of us so nobody would feel singled out, but even though they fall away, I will never fall away. Now, what a statement. Uh, I know sometimes we read this and we just think Peter's being, you know, arrogant. But I actually think, you know, maybe there's some pride in there for sure. But I actually think he really does believe this. He can't imagine I'd ever desert you, Lord. I love you. He says, even if everybody else falls away because of you, I won't. And Jesus saves the kicker for Peter. He goes, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, in other words, before the sun comes back up, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. And yeah, you would, right? Everybody else goes, yeah, ditto, right? Me neither, not just Peter. I'm not going to deny you either. And I think if we were in the room, we'd all say, yes, there's no chance. If we were in that space, we'd go, there's no chance I deny you. Remember, they've had lots of chances to deny him already. There was the point where Jesus said, if you want to be part of me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody ran away, and he looks to his disciples. He didn't say it with that accent, right? But he looked at his disciples, and he said, are you guys going to run too? And they go, 
Where else would we go? You hold the words of life. I guess we're sticking around. So they've been with him through thick and thin. But there's going to be a point where their strength is going to come to the end. Do you remember what we read, uh, I think it was last week, when, when Paul was talking to the Corinthian church and he said, uh, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. And we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. There is a point where everybody gets past their, their, their point of being able to bear something, past their point of being able to stand. And that's where you have to lean on the resurrection power of God. That's where you have to lean on the grace of God because your strength will run dry. Even these disciples up to this point haven't just been going on their strength. Jesus said in John 17, when he prayed to the Father, he said, I have kept these ones. I've kept them. The reason they're still with me is because I kept them. But there will be a point where they all fall away. Skipping on down to verse 51. And behold, one of those... So, so the, the, the bad guys show up. The rulers of the synagogue, the high priest's guys, the temple guard, they've all come armed to the hilt to arrest Jesus. They asked, are you Jesus? He says, I am. Those two words that shake all of the heavens, earth, and under the earth. The word I am that God said to Moses when, with the burning bush, I am. Jesus said, I am, and they fell down like dead people. They got up, asked the question again. He said, I am, they fell down again. But then they get to this point. Judas comes up and gives Jesus a, a kiss on the cheek as this Middle Eastern greeting, but it's also the signal to those guys that this is Jesus. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we find out from one of the other Gospels, this is Simon Peter reached and drew out his sword, and he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. I don't know if you want to start a massive revolution, but that's probably not how you do it. You don't start with the, the <laughs> minimum wage guy, <laughs> that, that, and you don't hit his ear for crying out loud. You, you, you try to do something more effective. Whether Peter was trying for that, whether in his panic he just missed, I don't know what happened, but he cuts off a man's ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, if you ever read this and go, how in the world did Peter escape out of this alive? Right? Because the armed soldiers have come to get Jesus. I don't know if you've, you've imagined it, but can you think about these armed soldiers? Suddenly, one of these guys, one of the guys you've come to arrest, one of the men that's with them, cuts off one of your servant's ears. I'm pretty sure uh, you'd have your swords out pretty quick or your spears, and, 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 and Peter would be pretty, you know, he'd have extra holes he's never had before, really quick. So somehow the peace of Jesus, somehow when he says, put away your swords, there's such authority in that that he's telling his guys to put away his sword, but it kept the soldiers at bay. They don't kill Peter. Peter probably owes his life to Jesus at this point. Now, can you imagine why would Peter do this? Remember what he said, I'm ready to die for you. Somewhere in his mind, maybe he's thinking, this is how it ends for me. Maybe he's thinking, I don't even have to win. All I have to do is put up a fight, but I'm going to go down in a blaze of glory. Somehow this is his last stand, and Jesus says, put your sword away. This is not how it ends. In verse 54, or do you think I can't appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's thousands and thousands of angels. One angel in the Old Testament knocked down a whole army. We're talking about thousands and thousands. And Jesus said, if I asked, I could have those at my authority right now. He said, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which says that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come to me? Come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber. Every day I used to sit in the temple. You didn't seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples left him and fled. So he says, he says I've been with you every day. I mean, I was in broad daylight in the temple. You could have arrested me at any time. You come in the middle of the night and treat me like a, a common robber or bandit. Why don't you come and get me in broad daylight? And he's exposing their own 
hypocrisy. He's exposing the fact that this is illegal. I mean, remember, they try him in the middle of the night in the high priest's own house because it was illegal. This wasn't how the things were meant to be done. But they were so desperate to get Jesus. But he says, you know, he's, he's exposing. He's going, why are you guys coming in the middle of the night to come get me? And then all of his disciples fled. There's one sentence right here. One sentence in the book of Matthew. In the book of Mark, you'll find one sentence. Then they all fled. All of them. That's how, in their minds, the story ends. Their whole history with Jesus, the years they've walked with him, their discipleship, it all ends with this moment. Then they all fled. They all ran away. Strike the shepherd. And the sheep will scatter. He, they hadn't really even struck down the shepherd yet. They just arrested him. But already the sheep are gone. Mark tells the story. And Mark, is, it's, most scholars believe, is the, uh, John Mark, when John Mark wrote it. Because John Mark wasn't there. He was a young man. But he, he became one of uh, Peter's uh, um, scribes and assistants. And so uh, most scholars would believe that John Mark's account is, is primarily coming from Peter. So Peter tells on himself. He says, we all ran away. He says even there was one disciple that was just wearing just a linen robe, and, and the soldiers grabbed it, and he just kept running and ran right out of his clothes. I feel like he didn't have to put that there, man. <laughs> Thank God he didn't use his name, right? I'm sure when he's reading it later, he's like, man, come on. You ran too. But somehow this all goes down. These are the people that Jesus has got to resurrect. Lord, we'll, they're the ones that just said a few verses before, we'll never leave you. We will die with you. Then they all ran away. So you can imagine those first few days after the resurrection, this is what Jesus is doing. He's rebuilding these lost sheep. He's rebuilding and resurrecting that which is broken. I want you to go to Luke with me, to Luke 22. And we're going to read it from another angle, what Peter says, because we're going to get a little bit more insight into what Jesus said to Peter. Because I want to focus on this for a minute. Because I wonder if today any of you have felt like Peter where you were pretty bold about who you were for Jesus, where you wanted to do, I mean, your heart was with him, and yet somehow you failed or somehow you let him down, or maybe even somehow you felt like he let you down, and, and coming back has been a bit tricky. There's this fun thing that we do as Christians when it comes to the cross. We draw a hard line between when I was unsaved and when I was saved, and we, that hard line is a line of, of complete forgiveness. That was before I knew Jesus. It's under the blood. I'm never going back to it. Thank God I'm forgiven. That old man is dead. Praise the Lord. And that's what you should do. But something else happens when a believer on this side of the cross falls for a moment. Confesses to the Lord. Repents. Knows that they're forgiven. Somehow it's a lot harder for them to come back and really believe they're forgiven. Why? Because I knew better. Because I was, I, I was trusted. Because I was in the church. Because I, I, I maybe taught Sunday school. Because I was doing all these things. All these things that we tell ourselves, it's not the same now. I don't know if I can ever be trusted again. You ever wonder if Peter felt that to the very core of his being? He was trusted by the Lord. He's one of the three that went and got to see Jesus uh, glorified with Moses and Elijah. He was the one who was often at the forefront of the miracles. He was the one that got to walk on the water when no one else did. But he's also the one that failed Jesus, besides Judas, failed Jesus the most. Once again, tell my disciples and Peter I'm alive. Watch what Jesus says to Peter in, in Luke chapter 22. Verse 38. Verse 39, sorry. Why am I going there? <laughs> I'm going to go further back. Can we do that? I'll give you one more number, and I promise this is the one. I know you don't, you, you, you're, you're gun shy now. I've, I've led you down the wrong path twice already. But trust me, this is the one. Verse 28. All right, there we go. You are those who've stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant that you too may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And that you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a statement. You're the ones that stuck with me. 
You're the ones that stuck with me through all my trials. You're the ones that didn't run away. You're the ones that didn't back down. You're the ones that didn't say, I don't know that guy. So I'm going to give you a place in my kingdom. Then he turns to Peter and he goes, Simon, Simon. Now once again, remember he's been calling Simon Cephas or Peter in Greek. Petros in Greek. Why? That means rock. Simon's name is Simon. That's the name he was born with. Shimon means reed. There's a big difference between a rock and a reed, right? Reed is flimsy. A rock is strong. So Jesus says, I'm going to call you rock now. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. But now he's calling him Simon again. I don't think he's talking about the fact that he's a flimsy reed. I think Jesus is referring to him in an intimate way. This is the name you were born with. I'm talking to you like a father would to his son. I'm talking to you dearly right now. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. When you sift wheat, what are you doing? You're separating the chaff from the grain. You're separating what you don't want from what you do want. I truly believe, and this, this, I believe this is borne out in Scripture, that Satan doesn't really believe that any of us are for real. <laughs> like, he really, he really thinks, I mean, you know, he's... He's, he's beyond redemption himself. He's be, he doesn't understand the concept of forgiveness. He's so full of hate and anger. I really believe he thinks all of us are, are just fake. To some level, I mean, he fears you, but I, 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 I don't think he comprehends the love that God has for you, and I don't think he comprehends the love that you have for God. And so there is this test that Jesus is, is speaking of here where Satan's going to try to prove that you're not real. He's going to sift you. He's going to try to prove that if you're, if you're not with me, if I strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter and they'll never come back. You're not for real. Right? Peter talks about this much later in his life when he says, the, he says, even though you've gone through many trials, when you go through these trials and tribulations, he says the faith that's in you will prove to be genuine. It'll prove to be more precious than gold when refined by fire. What's he saying? He's, he's saying these tests were sent to burn up everything that you have, but what you have is a faith that can't be burned up. It's incorruptible. It's imperishable. It, that is the seed that you were born again by. So here Jesus says, Satan wants to do this. He wants to test. He wants to see if you're for real. He wants to sift you. But I've prayed for you. And I just love that, 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 that but I've prayed for you. Remember, but changes everything. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, what is he praying that won't fail? He doesn't say, Peter, I'm praying that you'll, you'll be strong, that your will won't fail. He's not praying... Peter, that your loyalty won't fail. He's not saying, I'm praying that your bravery won't fail. He's saying, I'm praying that your faith, your faith won't fail. See, up to right now, Peter's dependence has been on his own love for the Lord. His own belief that I'll stand by you no matter what. I am a loyal guy. I may be dumb, but I'm brave. But here, Jesus is not appealing to Peter's strength or the best parts of his character. He's appealing to his faith. Faith doesn't say, I can do this. Faith says, I can do it through him. Faith says, you can do this. Faith is not, how, how tight can I hold on to Jesus? Faith is, how, how tight is he holding on to me? My faith will not fail because the Lord is interceding for me. Here's what he says. I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. And you, once you've turned again. Remember, he's told Peter, you're going to deny me. But once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's amazing about this statement is a couple of things. Number one, it's amazing to me that Jesus would tell someone flat out, you're going to fail. And there's nothing I'm going to do to stop it. You're going to fail. But you're going to come back. You're going to come back. And you're not just going to come back and be the pariah in the group that sulks off in the corner. You're going to be the one that I'm going to use to strengthen all these other guys. Is that how you view somebody that's restored in the body of Christ? Is that how you see yourself being restored? Do you believe Jesus could say to you, I've already seen your future? I'm not making you do this. this is not, you, can't, you can't go and say, well, the Lord made me sin because he knew about it. No, he saw it, but you chose it. But he's the one that restores you. He's the one that brings you home. He's the one that resurrects you. He's the one that cleanses you with his own blood. And here's what he says, when you've turned. So that Jesus has full faith in Peter, even though Peter's in a moment, is not going to have any faith in himself. Jesus has full faith, not in Peter, but in Peter's ability to be held by him. That you're going to come back, Peter. 
And you're going to serve my purpose. You're going to strengthen your brothers. He goes on and tells him even more. But Peter says, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And I'm sure he believed it. He said, I say to you, Peter, that the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you even know me. He said, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. That's a tough last few words that he's leaving them with here. And he's going to go to the garden. He's going to pray. And all this is going to happen. But in a moment, he's going to be arrested. And you know the story. They all run away, but somehow Peter and John find their way back, and they follow at a distance. They're no longer the brave guys standing beside Jesus. They're creeping behind, following behind the soldiers. Maybe they ran off and hid behind a tree. Maybe they ran off and looped back around. Whatever it is, they're following at a distance. They get to the high priest's house, and this is where the trial is taking place. There's a courtyard with torchlight. John... We believe it's John. He's not named, but it's in John's gospel. And often when he says there was another disciple, he's usually talking about himself. He rarely names himself. So we just assume it's John. Could be another guy. So let's just say it's John for the sake of this. And if you want to believe it's somebody totally different, that's your prerogative. John goes, and he knows one of the temple guards. So Peter's standing at a distance, and John goes and talks to the guy he knows. The guy he knows says, come on, come in. And so this disciple motions to Peter, come with me. I, I, I found us a way in. Peter is trying his best to be as close to Jesus as possible. Isn't that great? At this point, he's failed in his first attempt, right? He cut off a dude's ear. Jesus put the ear back on the man. So that's a fail. But he's still alive. And maybe he thinks, I just want to be near Jesus. Maybe he thinks there'll be a chance I can try again. I don't know what he's thinking, but he's just trying to be close to Jesus. But the Bible tells us that somebody says, hey, Aren't you one of those guys that was with him? No, I, don't, I wasn't. I wasn't. Somebody hears his voice and goes, Ooh, that, that accent kind of sounds Galilee hillbilly to me. You ain't from around here, are you? You must be one of his guys. I'm not. A servant says, a servant girl says, yeah, you are. And the Bible tells us one of the people that asked him was the cousin of the guy that got his ear chopped off. So this is somebody with beef with Peter, Right? The cousin of the guy that got his ear chopped off recognizes him. That's the last person you want to see recognize you. You are the one. The servant girl says, you're the one, this, this old girl. And Peter starts swearing and cursing, going, I don't know him. I swear, I don't know him. Then the Lord looks at him. They make eye contact, and Peter hears the rooster crow. And he goes, I did it. I did exactly what he said I was going to do. I denied him three times. Pick up with me in the book of John, chapter 21. You know, I already said that when Jesus was risen from the dead, he, he told the women, go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm alive. Peter himself ran to the tomb, stooped in, saw the grave clothes, believed he was alive, came back, told everybody he was alive. But once again, we're having these multiple encounters where Jesus is having to prove it to people. Remember what we read right at the beginning in Acts chapter 1? It says that, he, with many convincing proofs, showed himself to be alive. Friends, you don't have to make many convincing proofs unless, if people already believe you're alive. He's having to prove them over and over again, I'm really alive, so that they really believe it. And he says to them, hey, you know what? You all get to see this now, but blessed are those that, that believe when you don't even see. There's going to be a point where you're going to have to believe stuff I, I, you can't touch and you can't see, and you're still going to have to believe it. Can you do that? And as he slowly goes from group to group, showing up at their meals and walking beside them on the road and coming again and gathering with them in these houses, he is, the Bible tells us, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that he appeared to over 500 people. Over 500 people he's appearing to, and he's, he's proving that he's alive. He appears to his own brother James, who I don't know if you've read this in the Gospels, but the Bible tells us that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. 
But somehow, after Jesus appears to James alive, James becomes one of the main leaders of the church. The resurrection changed him. It says this in John chapter 21, verse 7. They've, for, for context, they, they knew Jesus, Jesus had told them, he'd already appeared to them, he'd already showed himself alive, but he said, go on to Galilee, I'll go with you, I'll meet you there. And so when they got to Galilee, they didn't know what else to do. What do we do? We can't go preach, because we're not really sure what to preach. So they did what they were used to do. When, when you don't know what to do, you tend to go back to the familiar, and so they went fishing. And they went out fishing. And they weren't catching anything, which, I mean, like, have you ever wondered how these guys made it as fishermen? Because most of the stories in the Bible are of them not being able to catch anything. <laughs> I just wonder how they survived, right? Like, maybe it's just around Jesus they weren't able to catch anything. But I don't know. It just seems like every story we have, they're like, wouldn't we catch fishing all night? Couldn't catch anything. And so the Lord pulled out one of his greatest hits. He comes and he's on the shore and he goes, hey, guys, why don't you... Throw it on the other side, which if you're not Jesus, that's terrible advice for a fisherman. There's not a big difference from there to there. I mean, not enough to account from nothing to your nets breaking, right? But Jesus told them, throw it on the other side. They did. The nets were full of fish. Their nets didn't break this time. And they recognized, hey, that's the Lord. That's something he does. Right? That's one of his things. They <laughs> said, it's the Lord. Therefore, verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I mean, he knew the boat was heading towards Jesus, but I'm going to get there first. Sometimes I wonder if the boat still beat him. Wouldn't that be funny? Like if he just tried to be faster and he's swimming and then the boat passes him, like, way to go, Peter. You're all wet for nothing. But the other disciples came in the little boat. So they got a big boat for fishing and then got like a little boat for, for rowing to the shore. For they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went and drew up the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, these is kind of ambiguous. Is he talking about love me more than these guys? But I don't think that's the way Jesus would talk. I think he's talking about what Simon's known all his life, this, the fishing, the nets, all of this. Do you love me more than all this stuff? And, and, and Simon, <laughs> I mean, he goes, of course, Lord. Lord, I, I mean, I, I, you know I love you. He said, well, then tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, well, then shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. I mean, wouldn't you be kind of upset if Jesus kept asking you the question? Like, didn't I just tell you I loved you? I told you twice. At this point, Simon is saying, like, maybe I don't. I don't know. You know me better than I know me. So he says, he says Lord, <laughs> you know my heart. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Like, check, check and see for yourself. I love you. Jesus said, well, then tend my sheep. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and you used to walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And they'll bring you where you don't wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. As many of you know, Peter was crucified in Rome as an old man. We, this is not in the Bible because it was later. But during the Neronian persecution, Nero was persecuting the Christians. He had sold Rome on the lie that the Christians had started the great fire of Rome. Because people were blaming Nero, so he had to shift the blame to somebody else. 
One of the regions that was largely untouched was the regions where the Jews lived in Rome. Most of the church was Jewish, right? Pretty much the entire early church was Jewish. Then Gentiles came along later, so a lot of them lived in this area, and Nero couldn't really blame the Jews. That's too big of a group, so who can I blame? Christians. Nobody really trusted the Christians at that point. They're still outsiders. They're the weirdos on the friends. They believe a guy got up from the dead. So he starts this persecution, and it gains steam, and people are cheering for Christians dying. Peter has been warned. Now, this isn't in the Bible, so you need to take that differently than you would take Scripture. But reliable Christian historical sources, okay? I'm going to say that. The contemporaries of the time, the people that wrote down the history of the church who lived during that time wrote this, all right? So you take it. It's, diff- it's not Scripture. It's at a different level, all right? But we're going to take it as history. They said that Peter, like he'd been warned many times, someone would give him the word. They're looking for you. He'd go and he'd leave the city till, till you know, the heat cooled down and he'd come back and he'd be fine. But this time he's headed out of the city. He's an old man. He's heading out of Rome. And he sees a vision of Jesus walking into the city. And he goes, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus turns to him and says, I've come again to be crucified. And Peter, as an old man, turns around and follows Jesus back into the city and surrenders himself to be arrested. Same history tells us that when he got to the Colosseum, or the Colosseum wasn't built, but when he got to the stadium where they were going to crucify him, they had crosses set up. He looked up at the cross and he said, I'm not worthy to die the same death that Jesus died. He said, can you turn that thing upside down? I'll be crucified upside down. The history doesn't tell us whether they listened or not. The Romans probably would have said, we're not, we're not here for you. We're, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Either way, he asked the question. And he did exactly what Jesus told him he would do. But this is the last thing Jesus says in this sentence. He says, follow me. That's what you need to know. Somebody else turns and goes, <laughs> they turn to John and they go, hey, because he's the youngest of the crew. Hey, I know you like this guy. Is he going to live until you come back? And Jesus says, it doesn't matter if he does or doesn't. You follow me. But I, I want you to just marinate for a minute on this conversation with Peter. That's, it's, it's been a while. He's, he's already sent somebody to tell Peter, tell Peter I'm alive. Then he appeared to Peter. Well, first, before that, Peter went to the grave, didn't find him. Then he appeared to Peter. He's talked to Peter. But this is a very important conversation. Remember what's broken, Peter, and I'm still, I'm, I'm sure he's still broken on some level. I let Jesus down. I denied him. I wonder if he could make eye contact with him the same way he did before. And, and something about the book of John. John always leaves these funny little breadcrumbs. John puts these little details that nobody else puts in sometimes. And it's just something interesting that I find about this chapter is that John, and maybe for some of you who remember, T and I did a, a series a couple years ago on YouTube uh, called After the Grave, and, and we did, we did a YouTube five-minute devotionals on that, and we talked about this, so you might remember it. But remember that there's this word, there's a word for fire that's used throughout the New Testament, but there's a word that's only used twice, right here, charcoal fire. I don't believe it's the only time they used a charcoal fire, but it's the only time it's ever mentioned that this is a charcoal fire, except for one other time. And that one other time was the charcoal fire that Peter stood over when he denied Jesus. So I believe that's significant. Jesus sits with Peter over a charcoal fire. Those smells are bringing back memories. Everything's coming back to him. And over the charcoal fire, the same sort of fire that Peter denied Jesus over, Jesus gives him three opportunities to affirm his love. He denied Jesus three times. Do you know him? No. Do you know him? No. I swear I don't know him. And Jesus kind of reverses it. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? You know I love you. Peter always gets fired up on the third one, right? He's either going to swear at you or say, you know my heart. But, I mean, he does not like to be asked a question three times. We've learned this about Pete. Don't ask him the same thing three times. He's going to start to think you're not listening or you don't believe him. But is it any coincidence that Jesus asked him three times? Like three times. You you denied me three times. I'm going to let you say you love me three times. And watch, after every time that he says, I love you, Lord, Jesus responds with a call to ministry. Pastor my people. Oversee my flock, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. 
Peter is being reminded, hey, I, 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 I'm not just forgiven, I'm trusted again. Because a lot of us Christians will believe we're forgiven to the point that we're going to heaven, that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us, but we don't, we're not quite sure we'll ever be trusted again. Can you trust me with something, Lord? Can you trust me with ministry? Can you trust me with being able to, to oversee something? Lord, can I be trusted again? And the Lord says to Peter, in fact, not only can you, but you must tend my sheep. Take care of my flock. And I, I, you might have heard me say this on Good Friday. But, but up to this point, Jesus has said to Peter and his friends, you're going to be fishers of men. Peter's known as a fisherman. He's known as that's, that's his thing. But from here on, if you read his letters, he keeps talking about being a shepherd. Never calls himself a fisherman again. Now I'm a shepherd because Jesus gave him that ministry of a shepherd. And he took it so, hard, so to heart that for the rest of his life, when he's an old man and writes First and Second Peter, he says, we are shepherds under the chief shepherd. And he goes, we're going to give an account to Jesus for how we treated his sheep. That's how he saw himself. Because that's what Jesus built back in him. Jesus rebuilt Peter brick by brick. See, the power of the resurrection not only saves me, but it restores me. Romans chapter 4 says this. It says, he, was, he who was delivered over to death for our transgressions was raised for our justification. That means Jesus died for your sins, but he was raised for you to be right with God. And so the death of Jesus put the old man to death. The death of Jesus put my sinful life to death. But the resurrection of Jesus gave me a new life and a new purpose. And I want to tell you, that's the same spirit of restoration that's at work today. When God is restoring people and he's restoring lives and he's restoring a city, what he's doing is it's the power of resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead, resurrecting you. Resurrecting your hope and resurrecting your call and resurrecting that mission, the things that God gave you. The Bible says the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't take back the gifts he gave you. And so we have to believe that if the blood of Jesus is good enough, if it's big enough to save me from hell, it's big enough to save me from this past where I have failed him and I failed my friends and I failed my church, but Lord, you're able to restore me. That doesn't mean, you know, I know there's always a process of restoration. doesn't mean you jump right back into doing it. Sometimes you need to be rebuilt. Sometimes there's steps you need to take. We understand that. You know, especially depending on the level of authority you've walked in, there's times where you may have to take a step back and deal with some issues you're just trying to throw away. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't trust you anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't either. I don't want you to believe that who you were is, is not who you are. Amen. I want to read you something. I quoted it earlier, but I want to read you with you as, as we bring this towards a landing in 1 Corinthians 15. You guys know that Paul wasn't shy about talking about his past. He wasn't shy about talking about his worst things he's ever done. In fact, if you've read the book of Acts, he brings it up every time he gets arrested. <laughs> Every time they put him on trial, he tells his story again. I persecuted the church. I was after him. I did this. And then Jesus knocked me down. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he told me. I mean, he tells this story every time. I mean, I know that we talk about the Lord not remembering our sin anymore. And that means he'll never bring it up again. He doesn't count it against you. He doesn't see it as part of you anymore. It doesn't mean that every time we read the book of Acts, God is up in heaven going, What? Paul did that? This is news to me. No, he knows. Right? I mean, if everything, can you imagine if every time Paul told his testimony, God's like, that doesn't seem right. I don't remember that. No, he obviously remembers it. But he will not remember it. He will not bring it up. It's not part of you. God sees it as completely under the blood. Not, not just as an asterisk next to it, but removed from you. So it's not part of your record. It's not part of who you are. You, are, you now stand before him righteous and justified. Amen? When Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I've, I've wronged no one. He doesn't mean I've never made a mistake. He's saying, he was telling them, I didn't take advantage of you guys. I didn't try to take your money. I've proved myself to be a good apostle. He's not, proving, he's not saying I never sinned in my life. Because he tells people all the time. Well, he says to Timothy, he said, he said, we know this, it's a trustworthy statement, that the Lord came to save sinners. And he goes, and I'm the foremost among them. 
I hold the world record. And he goes, but God showed his mercy to me. Above all, he says, I, he, and he goes on and he tells Timothy, I think he did it to show, to prove, to use me as an example of his great patience and kindness to everybody. He picked the biggest sinner so that he could show off his mercy. Isn't that amazing? So Paul wasn't ashamed to tell his story. But he also wasn't going to let that past tell him he couldn't do what God called him to do. Because he understood the power of the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to, our script, to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We read this last week. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's to Peter, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom remain until now, but some who have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain. It wasn't a waste. But I labored. I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, it wasn't me working, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now listen to what he says. I'm not qualified to be an apostle. But he goes, but I am one. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you've read the, the epistles, the letters that Paul wrote, he, he, he's not afraid to pull that out and go, I'm the apostle here. He's not afraid to say, by the grace given to me, I'm going to say this to you right now. And I'm going to speak very plainly to you right now. He says, I'm the apostle called by God. He, he, he uses it very firmly. He doesn't go, I mean, I hate to use this word, apostle. I know I don't deserve to be called this, but would you guys mind if I just put it on my business card, apostle? <laughs> guys, you can't be timid about your call. If you're a guy like Paul, you're going to be put to death for what you believe. You better believe it. You're going to have to stand up against people. He's had, in this same letter, he's had people write and, 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 and try to tell the Corinthians he's not a real apostle. He's, not, he's, he's, he's soft. He's, or he's this or that. And he's had to say, I am too. So you can't whiffle waffle about who you are. What does he say? I don't deserve to be an apostle. I'm disqualified. If you judge me on my actions, I don't measure up. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and it's no coincidence that that statement is smack dab in the chapter where he's proving Jesus is alive. He's proving the resurrection. He says, I mean, he, he appeared to me. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to James. He appeared to 500 other people. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you need proof that Jesus is alive, I'm proof that he's alive. Look at me. Look who I was. Now look who I am now. And brick by brick, the Lord rebuilds his people. Do you love me? Yeah, I love you, Lord. Then here's your mission. Lord, you, you, you learned, I mean, you should have learned your lesson about trusting me. When the, when the chips were down, I was, I was out. You know, like, at the point I really needed to stick by you, I ran away. And then I came back and I failed you again. Three times I did exactly what you said I was going to do. Follow me and tend my sheep and encourage your brothers. Have you ever considered that one of your missions, when the Lord brings you back from failure, when the Lord brings you back from, from, you know, this point where you feel like you've let him down or he's let you down, one of the things that God is going to do in you is not only restore you fully, but use you to be an instrument of restoration to others. Encourage your brothers. I don't know if I, 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 it's been a while since I told you this, so some of you may not have heard this, but when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan is desired, to sift you like wheat. You is plural. He's desired to sift you all like wheat. But then he says to Simon, but I've prayed for you. Satan's going to test all of these people, but you're an important key in my ministry of reconciliation and restoration. When you've turned, and I just, I just want you to focus on that phrase, when you've returned. Now here I'm standing here, I'm, I'm praying that not one of you falls away. Not one of you falls back. I don't even want you to make a little, I don't even want you to go back a little bit. I want you to go upward and forward into the call of Jesus. But if there's anybody in this room 
that has never been able, never been able to truly buy that God trusts you anymore. You, you somehow have an asterisk next to your name that you didn't have when you got saved. Because at least when you got saved, you, you could say, I was, I, was a, I was a mess, I was broken, I was a sinner, I was an awful person, but the Lord saved me. But you haven't been able to tell your story about how somehow after that you still made a mistake. Somehow those stories don't sell as well. I want you to get up on your feet today. Not right now. <laughs> I mean, spiritually, get up, stand up again. The Old Testament says this, the prophet said this, don't even rejoice over me, all my enemies, for when I fall, I shall arise. The Lord is my light. He's my salvation. The Bible says salvation belongs to him. The first thing you need to do when you, are, when you have fallen is to repent. Get up. Don't stay in it. Don't stay there. Let, let the Lord bring you out. The Bible says a sorrow that's according to the will of God will bring repentance, which will bring salvation or deliverance, rescue, without regret. But the sorrow that's according to the world produces death. Here's what happens. That feeling you feel like, this, I feel terrible when I'm doing this. That's not the devil making you feel terrible. That's your own resurrected, reborn spirit saying you're a child of God. Start acting like one. And when you come and you say, yes, Lord, and you repent, then there's salvation. And salvation doesn't come from you. Salvation belongs to God. It's the Lord that pulls you out of the pit. The moment you say, Lord, help, like Peter did when he walked on the water. And he fell, I mean, he started to sink. And the Bible says he called out, and immediately the Lord was there. That's how close Jesus was. Pulled him back up. The part of the story we don't read very often is how they got back to the boat. Do you think that Jesus put them on his shoulder like a fireman, carried them back? Or do you think Jesus walked them right back to the boat? Do you think God can do that with you? Well, I was walking on the water, but then I failed. I'm never going to try again. Or do you think you can walk right back to the boat? And stand up there with your friends and say, I walked on water. That's what God wants to do in your life. So what do you do? You repent. Paul goes on to say in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 8 that you've, you, there's vindication, there's zealous, there's making things right. Listen, if you stole somebody in this church's car and you go, all right, I'm going to repent. I shouldn't have done that. And you say, Lord, forgive me. You don't keep the car. <laughs> Give the car back. <laughs> What's under the blood? The, the car needs to go back. If you cheated on your taxes this month, and right now the Holy Spirit's saying, you, sh you stole money. Well, I don't like the government. Doesn't matter. You stole. <laughs> Pay the government back. You don't say, well, but I already said sorry. I, I repented to God. Make it right. Zacchaeus, in the presence of God, said, I'll pay back four times what I've stole. I'm not telling you to do that on your taxes, but, you know, make it right. If you're in fornication, get out of fornication. If, if you're lying, stop lying. If you're stealing, stop stealing. But let God rescue you from it. And believe that when you're rescued, you're truly rescued. And when you're washed, you're truly washed. And that you can get back up and walk right back to the boat, forgiven, alive, and miraculous. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise you back to life. Amen. Do you believe that today? Stand up with me. Let's pray.